Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives or women, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sohi. As I mentioned already today, we're taking a break from our series in Matthew called Why Follow Jesus to look at what the Bible teaches about the diaconate. And I realize that word is a little funky. You may have never seen that word before. I was talking to somebody who saw that in the E! News and like, what's a diaconate? I mean, what is that? But it's, it's a plural um, for deacons. So it's the team of deacons. Uh, and I, as I shared last Sunday during our congregational update, the New Testament teaches that at the heart of every healthy and sustainable and fruitful church, there are two teams. There is a team of elders and a team of deacons or a diaconate. This twofold leadership structure, uh, sometimes referred to as a twofold office, means leadership in the church is meant to work. In plurality, meaning in teams, it's not just one person at the top of kind of a pyramid structure. It's plurality, it's teams, as well as in partnership. These two teams, the elders and the deacons, we just read about the deacons in 1 Timothy 3, are meant to work in partnership together. A team of elders are shepherd leaders who are called to lead, oversee, teach, and provide pastoral care. In a church. So elders focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, corporately and personally. They guard the theology, the vision, the mission, and the values of a church community. There are servant leaders who serve alongside the elders called deacons. They serve in areas of stewardship, operations, and care for the tangible needs of people and of the church as a whole. So this partnership between elders and deacons enables the elders to prioritize their work and their focus um, on leadership, oversight, teaching, and prayer. Trinity, our church, Trinity OC, we have a team of elders, and we, we thank and praise God for that. We hope soon to see more elders trained and added to our team. But first, our elders have decided our, our priority is to establish a diaconate team at our church. Now is the time for us to trust God to raise up this team of deacons. 
This is brand new to Trinity, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, Trinity has existed. uh, The history of our church goes back about 20 years, and so this is... uh, This is the first time, not that Trinity has thought about doing it, but it's the first time uh, we've come to a place where we sense now now is the time uh, for us to see this team raised up. So I thought it was really important for us to dedicate at least one sermon to teaching on the diaconate. And just let me give you a, a heads up, this sermon will be slanted more than normal towards teaching as we walk through the question, the broader question of what is what is a diaconate? First Timothy, which we just heard read, is the best place for us to start on this topic. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul as he realized he was getting near the end of his own personal ministry. So he wrote this letter to his protege, one of his trainees named Timothy. And the focus of the letter, it's there in verse 15. You can look and glance down at that again. He says, I'm writing to you for this purpose so you might know uh, what it looks like to be the church, how we might conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church, the pillar um, and foundation of the truth, he says. At the heart of this letter, here in chapter 3, Paul provides Timothy with some instructions about these two teams. Here is what a team of elders is. Here are the qualifications for elders and also for the diaconate. Now, before we get into it, it struck me this week that just the names and the titles for leadership in the church, just that alone shows how different, how unique, how strange in some ways, and how countercultural Christianity's approach to leadership is, no matter what culture that we're coming from. Um, titles reveal your place in a community, right? Uh, they reveal your status in a particular community or organization. If you shake somebody's hand and you're at like a company picnic and they, and they say, well, what's your position? Oh, I'm the CEO. And you say, oh, okay, you know, I've got I to gotta act a certain way. I've got to respect you in a certain way. You have CEOs, uh, CFOs. When you get promoted, you get a new title. That's a part of the package. Uh, that's a part of the reward in their promotion. So we have all kinds of titles, reverend, doctor, director, manager, partner. Um, There's been a trend lately in some companies for titles that seem more lowly or boring or maybe they're further down the org chart to spice them up so they're not considered like second-class positions. So I found some of these. There's one called the director of first impressions instead of a receptionist, it sounds like. It's a great title. Or Ambassador of Buzz for the communications director. If you go to Apple Store, what are they called? They're not called Apple Sales Associate. They're called Geniuses. I'm like, wow. Go to your local genius. And I found one called the Legal Ninja, who is a legal counsel uh, in a corporation. I'm sharing all that because we, we judge ourselves I think, and we judge other people based on our titles. Here are the two titles of leadership in the New Testament church. An elder, which means an old guy, literally, not necessarily speaking about age, but maturity, experience, and character in the gospel. Elderly, the title elderly is to our detriment, I think, in our culture, not a title of great honor. 
and respect. It's not a title anybody's out to earn for themselves. Nobody is saying, I can't wait till somebody calls me old and elderly. Because we're obsessed with youthfulness. But in the New Testament, Paul says, aspire that someone might look at you and see you and call you elderly. The title of honor and leadership. And then, for our purposes this morning, deacon. Deacon means servant. The way it was used in the culture of the day was to speak of somebody who had the role of attendant, a personal attendant, or a table waiter or waitress. I've never been a waiter or waitress. Um, well, I can't be a waitress, I understand that, but I've never been, I've never been a, a waiter. Um, but those, those are usually jobs that people are looking to and considering, hey, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm pursuing something else. I'm not going to be a, a career waiter. Personal attendant, table waiter, it's not a title that anyone aspires to. Yet in the Bible, the title of greatest honor from beginning to end is the title servant. Servant of the Lord, used very rarely of Abraham, of Moses, of Joshua, Caleb, King David in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you had Paul, James, Peter, Jude, and John in their letters call themselves servant, or even the stronger term, slave. Verse 13 in 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, Those who serve well as deacons or table waiters acquire a good standing. Do you want to have good standing in the church community, then here's your title. Deacon. Table waiter. That's a title of greatest honor in Christianity in the church. The one you should be most proud to wear on your name tag. The title of table waiter. Well, let's look at this role. What is a deacon? What is this role? Um, why do we need them? Who should be a deacon? And lastly, how does somebody carry out this ministry of service? So first, let's talk about what is a deacon. Even though deacons are a key leadership role in the church, the Bible, um, kind of surprisingly, actually doesn't describe anywhere exactly what a deacon is. This passage in 1 Timothy is probably the closest it comes. But what we see here are detailed qualifications, not a job description. And not a definition. Really, there's nothing in this passage that tells us what a deacon's supposed to do. So how do we know what a deacon is? We have two key things we can look to. First, which I already mentioned, is the word itself, the title deacon. It means servant. It means attendant or table waiter. So the word deacon means someone who is a servant who meets the tangible needs of others. That's pretty simple and straightforward. We also, in addition to having the word itself, we have the origin. So like a good superhero has an origin story, deacons also have an origin story, and it's found in Acts chapter 6. If you could uh, look at your bulletins, the passage is printed there for you um, on page 4. As you're looking at that text, some scholars debate whether this passage is directly speaking about deacons, I am convinced that it does, and it provides us with a fuller picture of what a deacon is and how the two leadership teams in the church are actually meant to work together. So 
This text, if not in its fullest form, the, the actual office and role of deacon, as mentioned in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 1, as well as in our text, 1 Timothy 3. I think this is speaking about the role of deacon in its kind of prototype or beginning stage. It's the origin of what would later be formalized into official ministry calling and office. So let's look at that um, together. Let's read this. Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days, the days of the early church, the disciples were increasing in number. There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve apostles summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Pause there. That's the word, same word, deacon, diaconin. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them and flip over next page. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. We looked at this story a number of months ago in our Blueprint series on Acts 1 through 12. It's about the very first church ever, the church in Jerusalem. So Acts is really the origin story of the church. The church was growing in numbers and also in diversity. As that happened, people's needs were being overlooked. And the 12 leaders, the apostles, took this very seriously, but they realized they couldn't do both the ministry of word and prayer and, at the same time, do the ministry of deaconing or waiting on tables. So they oversaw this selection of these seven leaders. And what was the result? Verse 7, the word of God, the gospel spread. The church grew healthier and the church also grew in numbers. It was meeting both the spiritual needs and the tangible, practical needs of people. Word and deed, body and soul together make for a healthy and missional church. So from the word deacon and from the story of the origin of the office of deacon, we can get a working definition. I'll put it up on the screen. What is a deacon? A deacon is a servant called by God to ensure that the personal and operational needs of a church are identified and met. Let's break that down just a little bit. Personal needs. In Acts 6, all this stuff, all the trouble they went through, the controversy that happened, all this was for very personal and practical needs so that every one of these women wouldn't go hungry, so that they could eat. It's very personal. Deacons serve people in times of need and in sickness and in major life changes. It can be good times and it can be hard times. Examples, when you have a new addition to the family, a new baby comes, that's a big change. When you're new to the area, big change, lots of needs. 
On the other side, hardships. When you lose your job or have ongoing physical illness, deacons step into that situation to see the need, to identify the need, and help the church meet the need. So that's the personal needs. But there's more than that. There's also operational needs. So what what was involved in meeting the needs of these widows who were being overlooked in this daily distribution? If you can imagine that, the church was 5,000 people at this point in time. We don't know how many widows there were, but a lot was involved here. They needed a whole new system. They had to deal with issues of time, of place, of language and culture barriers, the number of people that needed to help, as well as handling properly the church's resources and finances. So there was the personal aspect to this, but there was also the organizational, the operational needs. And this group of seven people had to figure out how to create an operation that would effectively meet those needs. So from from all this background, I think we can see why the New Testament doesn't spell out in detail or give us a deacon job description. Because the needs vary depending on the church. Depending on the context and the situation and the type of needs that are in any church community. And true service is always shaped by the particular needs that a person has or a community has. Let me just share an illustration. Uh, Yesterday at our home, we hosted a baby shower. Well, I didn't. Amelia hosted a baby shower, uh, which was a great time. But if I came to the baby shower... And I said, hey, I came early. I'm here to serve everyone. And I brought all my baseball gear. I had my baseball net. I had bats. I had a tee. I said, I can just set this baseball uh, tee up over here. I can get the net going. I've got all the equipment. We can practice our swings together. We could just get this going. Well, they would say, thank you, but that's not what we need here. We need you to go set these chairs up or set this table up. But if I were to take that same uh, package of equipment to baseball practice and say, hey, coaches, I've got some extra gear for you. I've got some gloves and a tee and a net. They would say, thanks. That's exactly what we need. True service takes the shape of the specific needs. So exactly what a diaconate does is not predetermined, but it's determined by the unique needs of people in the church and the community as a whole. Also, if you look at that definition, it's important that we emphasize the word ensure. The role of a deacon, some of you will be nominated for the role of deacon or ministry of deaconess. You'll need to hear this. It it doesn't mean that you're going to do all the work yourself and meet all the needs by yourself, but to help ensure that the church as a whole is meeting those needs. To activate, to mobilize and organize the church to be a community that doesn't overlook needs. What is a deacon? That's first. Why do we need deacons? Let's go back to the origin story here in Acts 6. So the church is growing. There's 5,000 people. It's a huge community. Personal and operational needs in the church increase as it grows. The need for leadership and the ministry of word and prayer also grows as the church grows. And when this happens, what happened here in Acts 6 can happen in any church community. People's needs can be overlooked. 
And in this case, it was the poor and the vulnerable minorities in the church. Needs in the church are overlooked when one or both of these two things happen. Often needs are just not expressed. We have needs, but we keep them to ourselves. And no one knows, which was a part of what was happening here for some time until it got really bad. And somebody had to say, these women aren't eating. And it became, instead of a need being made known, communication, it became a complaint, which could have really hurt the health and the mission of this church. So needs sometimes go unexpressed. But also, when a church's leadership capacity is reached, leaders are not able to proactively see all the needs personally or operationally in the church. And these are needs that they should see. So why do we need deacons? Because there are people chosen by the church as those whom we trust to make our needs known to, to share our needs with. And we all have needs. And they are gifted and called by God. They have a particular ability to see. See the needs of people so that needs in the church don't go overlooked. In our culture, in Orange County, we live busy lives. I don't know if I can get an amen to that one. We can talk. We can, we can share. We live spread out um, from our church. We live very spread out in many different areas. Many of us, I would say most of us, are either right on the line or maybe way past the line of living within healthy limits, reasonable limits on our time and energy. A lot of us are trying to do it all, trying to be it all, not just medi- mediocre. We want to be excellent in everything. So what this means is that when we have a need, and we all have needs, we're often reluctant to make that need known because people are so busy. We don't want to bother people. We keep it to ourselves. We're so busy that often we don't see the needs of others or the needs in our church community. Or we see a personal need. We see maybe a need in the church. We notice it and we say, I hope somebody else will meet that need because we're just living way too fast, way too busy, and way too full. So I think... More than ever, maybe, here in a place like Orange County, Trinity, in our church, we need deacons to help us be the church. Just to help us be the church. Because meeting needs in practical love and care is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the heart of what it means to be the church. Just a few references on this point. Look for the word need. First, uh, First John. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, John asks, how does God's love reside in him? James says it a different way. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Meeting needs is at the heart of what it means to have experienced the love of God. And there is my 
background musical soundtrack to that. What was that? Meeting needs is at the heart of what it means to have experienced the love of God. Meeting needs is at the heart of what it means to have a genuine living faith. R.B. Kuyper, an author, wrote this in his book on the church. He said, the diaconate is accurately described as the office of love. The greatest of Christian virtues, Christian love, comes to its most tangible expression in the office of deacon. This office is preeminently that of love. Love is its beginning and end. Why do we need deacons? Because they lead us by example and by their own calling in activating and in mobilizing tangible and practical love in the church. And there may be some things tied for most important with that, but nothing is more important than that in being the church. What is practical love? It means counting the offering, moving tables, setting things up, cleaning things up, making meals, running a soundboard, doing PowerPoint, setting up communion, feeding us with refreshments after the service. All these are needs. Practical love and action. Practical love means making time for someone going through a hard season, praying with someone, walking with someone in their illness, being there for someone in their hardship, and looking out for people who are struggling. That's practical love in action. Why do we need deacons? Deacons help us be the church by activating living faith and practical love to meet the needs of the church. What is a deacon? Why do we need deacons? And thirdly, who should be a deacon? What about the who? In a few weeks, all members of Trinity will be encouraged to nominate people for our diaconate. And some of you will be nominated for the diaconate. So everyone should know who exactly should be in this role of a deacon. What am I looking for? Well, at one level... I may have already made this point, but meeting needs through practical and tangible love is something every follower of Jesus is called to do. Just having deacons doesn't get everybody else off the hook. In Matthew 20, which we read in our liturgy, Jesus taught that the greatest aspiration, if you want to be great, the greatest goal, if you want to be first, and how our lives will make the most impact is if we become the last of all and the servant or the deacon of all. You want to be great? You want to be first, become the deacon of everyone. So at one level, every Christian should be a deacon. But at another level, some Christians are called to be pace setters. Pace setters of service who create a culture of service in a particular church family. Serving in the office of deacon. So 1 Timothy 3 tells us what these people, who, who these people should be. Look at verses 9 and 10. These are the qualifications for the role of deacon. Verse 8 mentions deacons. He says, likewise, he's likewise, um, deacons likewise, that's in parallel to the description and the qualifications of elders. Just like elders, an official leadership role in the church, he says, so deacons. And then we see a list of the qualifications. Could you look at this list? Verses 9 and 10. What do you notice? These qualifications are all about character. There's nothing here about accomplishments. 
titles, natural abilities, skills, or even gifts, but everything to do with character. It's similar with elders, with the exception for elders. The gift and the skill of teaching and management and leadership is also required, which is a clue to the difference in the roles. But what kind of character? How would you summarize this? It says they're worthy of respect. They're not hypocritical or two-faced, not ruled by addiction to wine or to money. They have self-control. They are proven faithful in service. So it's someone with integrity, someone who holds the gospel in a steady, consistent, and authentic way, proved over time in service, the kind of person you can trust. Now, the kind of person who's safe to care for important, sensitive, personal, and operational needs. That's who a deacon is. Deacon is someone who looks at these character qualifications and says, oh, not me, but who others look at and say, yes, yes, you. Yes, you are broken and sinful, like all of us, but I see the work of Jesus in you in these ways. So my friends here, church family, I want you to pray. I want you to look around you because I believe They are here. They are here among us, deacons. I think there's an implicit promise here in this text. If God says to a church, hey, you need to be healthy and sustainable, so you need elders and deacons, there's an implicit promise that God places deacons in a church body. He puts deacons in every church. Who should be a deacon? The text tells us we should be looking at qualified men and also qualified women when it comes to the diaconate ministry. Look at verse 8, deacons, speaking about male deacons, as well as verse 12, husbands of one wife. But verse 11, if you could look at that, speaks to women or wives. could be translated either way. Before we get into what this means and how we can translate that, I just want to step back and say, say this first. The way that men and women serve together in the church is an important topic, and it can be a sensitive topic in how we understand that. So let me just provide two theological pillars to frame this conversation. One pillar is the Bible clearly affirms the equal dignity, ability, and gifting of men and women so that there's a foundational unity and equality. Pillar one. Pillar two. Alongside this, The Bible affirms the distinctions and the differences of the genders. So there is a foundational unity and a complementary diversity that are meant to always work together. There's both in marriage and in the church. Men and women are not competing for power but complementing each other in service. When it comes to the office of elder and the authoritative leadership teaching role, 1 Timothy 2 and 3 teaches it is to be fulfilled by qualified men. But when it comes to women's role in the diaconate, back to verse 11, there are actually two main options. How do we understand this? I I put both in there. If you have your Bible open, um, all translations, I think, indicate this word can be translated in two different ways. It's just the Greek word for women. It also could be translated wife or wives. Is this talking about the wives of deacons 
So that the calling is to ministry as a couple, or is it talking about women who served alongside the male deacons in some way? Is it describing a servant leadership role that's shared by husband and wife? Qualified couples in a servant leadership role, or is it describing women who served in the servant leadership role in partnership and who are not married necessarily to each other? It can be translated and interpreted in either way. Let me give you some reasons on either side. In favor of seeing this as women, note the parallel structure. I said this is going to be a a teaching sermon, so I want you to follow along. Um, In verse 8, Paul says, deacons likewise. And then in verse 11, it says, wives too, or wives likewise. Parallel structure. So elders, deacons likewise, women likewise. That indicates that this might be a parallel position and role in the church. There's elders, there's deacons, and then there's women deacons or deaconesses. Notice also there's no possessive pronoun for the wives. Whose wives are these? It would be natural if it said their wives, deacons, and then their wives. We'd know it's the wives of the deacons, but there's no possessive pronoun. Also, interestingly enough, there's no set of qualifications for elders' wives. And you would think that the, the importance, if, if a deacon's wife was important to their ministry, then an elder's wife would be even more important to their ministry. So that's curiously absent. Notice also that the requirements actually match the requirements very closely to those mentioned in verses 9 and 10, the, the male deacons. So that indicates they were, act, they were active in the work. It's not just that they were married to a deacon. In addition to 1 Timothy 3, Romans 16.1 mentions somebody named Phoebe. And Paul says, I want you to um, acknowledge Phoebe, and he calls her a deacon in the church at Kenkarai. And then he describes her ministry. All those reasons I've outlined would be in favor of seeing the reference in verse 11 as a group of women who are active in serving on the diaconate, not the wives of the deacons. On the other hand, what's the other view in favor of wives? Well, Paul returns right back to speaking of male deacons. He says, husband of one wife in the very next verse. So his remarks, maybe they're a part of his continual train of thought about the role of deacon. The nature of diaconal ministry um, would probably, because it's caring for sensitive personal needs, probably um, entail and be important that a male deacon is serving uh, with the help of, of his wife. Um, on this view, Phoebe might not be an official deacon, but maybe she's a very active and important servant in that church, but she doesn't have an official office or position. Okay. Either way, because of the men, woman, men structure, we can say this. These women were in some way an active part of the diaconate team, whether they were wives or not wives. That's what's not clear. Was it it the wives of the deacons who are called to serve alongside uh, their husbands in couple ministry? Or was it uh, women who are serving in some way as a part of this diaconate team? What's also not clear is whether these women, if they're not wives... We're serving in the same exact role as these men or in a different 
complementary role. I'm sharing all that with you, and I want to let you know there are different ways to interpret this, and there's disagreement in exactly how we should understand it. It's been handled a lot of different ways throughout church history. So our denomination allows for two main interpretations, either as the wives of deacons or as assistants to the diaconate, a non-ordained position serving within the diaconate team. There is right now in our denomination some discussion on allowing for a third view, the interpretation of women deacons serving in the exact same role as the men deacons on the diaconate team. Personally, as I study this, I see this reference being either appointed assistants or ordained deaconesses. I see those as possible interpretations. At Trinity, and the details are in the documents that we sent out, here's how we will handle this. Deaconesses will serve alongside the men deacons, the male deacons, in a complementary way. Deaconesses will be appointed servant leaders who will serve alongside the ordained deacons to assist in ensuring that personal and corporate needs are met at our church. So that's a lot of detail. That's a lot of discussion. There may be some follow-up questions you have about that. But here, at the end of the day, here's what I'm excited about. After a whole week of thinking and praying and working on this and studying this again, God has given Trinity men and women who are gifted by His Spirit. And we are praying will be called into this ministry to help us be the church, a community where needs are not overlooked, where needs are shared, where needs are met so people are loved. A church where our faith in Jesus moves beyond even greater in greater ways from being just a theoretical faith to a living faith. We're a community where people who come would say, people here are loved. And I'm excited to see how, as we trust God, that he raises up this team in order that might be increasingly so here at our church. Lastly, how to deacon. We talked about what, why, who, now, how. How does anyone take on this role of a servant? How does anyone take that name tag and put it on and take on that title of attendant, table waiter, table waitress, in the church or in any relationship? How can someone accept that call? Well, the biggest and the most difficult obstacle to people's needs being met in the church or in any community is the selfishness of the human heart. It's the me first, my needs before anyone else's, someone else will do it, nature of the human heart. It's in everyone. And everything around us says you first, your needs first. Someone else will do it. Look out for yourself first, because if you don't look out for your needs, who will? You could look for me or with me at Matthew 20. It's final text for us to look at together. This is something we looked at in our liturgy. It's from a, a section 
in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is near the end of His ministry. He's heading towards the cross. He's spending time with His disciples. And His disciples, these 12 guys, had uh, spent all this time with Jesus who is probably the most selfless person ever. I think we could all agree to that. And they're all thinking, I wonder who is the greatest disciple? Is it me? If Jesus brings the, the, the kingdom now, who will have the title of right-hand man and left-hand man? Who will be by his side? And they're all thinking, it better be me. It should be me. And James and John are the ones who step up and actually ask the question, will it be us? And we look at that and go, wow, how selfish is that? The reality is it could have been any of us. It could have been me. It could have been any of those disciples. That's the context for what Jesus says here to them in Matthew 20, as he gives the antidote for selfishness. Let's read that. Jesus called them over and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, to be deaconed, but to serve, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, God in the flesh, says, I came to serve you, not to be served. I came to meet your needs, your greatest need, whatever the cost to me. I will pay the price. I will bear the price, the ransom. So your greatest need is met. How to deacon? Let's move to the next slide. We can only deacon to the extent we know we have first been deaconed by Jesus. If, if you've ever been served in a time of, of great need in your own personal life, you will want to, not because you have to, not out of obligation, you will want to return that service out of love to the person who served you. I think of my own life, some of my hardest times in my life, when I lost my, my dad. I remember the people who served me. I remember the people who called me. I remember the gifts that I was given. And if a need came up for them, I wouldn't feel duty. I wouldn't feel obligation to have to step in and help them out in whatever way they needed. I would do it and want to do it out of love. Here is what makes Jesus so different. Absolutely unique among any other thing we can serve. Every other God, any other thing we can serve, says salvation comes from you serving me. You serve me enough, you do what I say, you obey me, you give me your allegiance and time and effort, and I'll give you what you want from me. But that doesn't cure selfishness, that only fuels it. And that's how many people see Christianity and how many of us approach God. If I serve Him enough, He'll give me what I want. But that only leads to one of two directions. It leads to entitlement and bitterness or burnout. 
These are the two places people get when they serve for the wrong reason. And it happens in the church often, bitterness and entitlement. We say, well, I, I deserve better. No one noticed what I did. I better be nominated for that office or that position. I better be chosen. Why is that person in that role? Entitlement and bitterness or burnout. I can't do one more thing. I've given all I can give. I don't have joy in this anymore. The gospel gets to the root of our difficulty with service, to the root of our selfishness by telling us that salvation comes not from serving, but by being served. It's not our servanthood that saves us. It's the servanthood of God that saves us. That means all our needs and our greatest needs have been met and will be met by God, which sets us free to serve joyfully the needs of others. Now, if we believe that, you might say, well, that might motivate me to want to serve God. But what about other people? I can serve God. Look at all he's done for me. I will love him. I will serve him, not to get from him, but just to love him. But what does that have to do with other people? And this is my final point. Matthew 25, Jesus said this. He said, at the end of time and at the end of history, there will really be a division of two types of people. He calls it the sheep and the goats. And, he's, and they're, they're divided up, and Jesus says to them, those who knew me were the ones who served me while I was in prison while I didn't have any clothes, while I didn't have anything to eat, while I was suffering and when I was in need. And everyone there is going, what? Jesus, when did, when did we do that or when did we not do that? And Jesus says, to the extent that you did it, to the least of these, you did it to me. Jesus is saying, here's how you love me for all the ways that I've served you and my promise to meet your deepest need, you love me by loving people. Now, as we seek and trust God together to become a church with a, with a culture of service, for God to raise up a diaconate, let's pray. All together would we pray that we would gain the eyes of Christ here, that we would serve other people, because we have been served by Him. We would serve them as if we are serving Jesus Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this astounding and amazing reality. You made us, You know our deepest need, you see the deep selfishness in our own hearts, how it moves us away from you, how it hurts your own heart and hurts other people and blinds us to the needs even of those closest to us. And yet, you came to serve us. And yet, you gave your only son to meet our greatest need. I pray, Lord, as we enter into this season of discerning who it is that you've called to raise up into our diaconate, that you would bless this time, that you would give us unity as a body, 
that you would use this time for those whom you call to that office to confirm, to affirm, to encourage them, and to release them for what you've gifted and created them to do. I pray for all of us that it would help us all take a posture more fully, more faithfully of a servant. Thank you for how you have served us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Close with a final song together.